Hey, we have, uh, we have someone in this room who's uh, been a member of Maple Grove for maybe 80 plus years. And uh, Miss Kathleen Wickline's back there this morning with us. <laughs> it's a long time. She's a sweet lady. She just turned 29 for the, I won't say how many times, but I tell you what, she is so encouraging, and whenever she comes, I always, I always tell her, it's going to be a good day, because Kathleen Wickline is in the house. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Love you, Kathleen. Hey, hey I just want to share something real quick. Um, uh, I, I wrote this in front of my notes. Uh, you can't read it, but I felt God say this to me, and like he calls me Steve, and he says, Steve, I'm fixing to do something in and through some people today, exclamation point. Believe it, exclamation point. And I do believe it. I think God is fixing to do something in me and in you that's going to make a difference out there. Amen? Okay, I want to start off our time this morning with a, a few passages of Scripture. The first is the final words that Matthew recorded in his gospel, uh, Matthew chapter 28. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go. Someone say, therefore go. And make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And church... Beginning in Acts chapter 2, we see Jesus guys doing this very thing. Baptizing and teaching them to obey everything that God commanded. In Acts 2, Peter preaches this powerful sermon about Jesus and about how they needed to repent to be baptized. And we read in Acts 2, 41, that those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to the number of that day. And from that moment on, a movement was ignited. And we see it recorded in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, verse 4, we read this. Men who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Okay, now we're at 5,000, only in chapter 4. Acts 6, verse 7. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Acts 12, 24. The word of God, someone say the word of God, continued to spread and flourish. Acts 13, 49. The word of the Lord, someone say the word of the Lord, spread throughout the whole region. Acts 16, verse 5. The churches were strengthening in faith and grew daily in numbers. Acts 19, 20. The word of the Lord, someone say the word of the Lord, spread widely and grew in power. And then the very last verse in the book, Paul's in Rome, a long way from Jerusalem, and we read this. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to come into your presence. You're the one true God, the maker of heaven and earth. You are the great I am. You're over all things. You're before all things, and you hold all things together. You're good and kind, merciful, full of grace. And Father, I pray this morning as we lean into your word, I pray your spirit move in us and through us. I, I pray that what happens in here makes a difference in us so that we can make a difference out there for you. Father, I pray that you'll enable me to speak your word 
in a way that brings you honor and glory. I pray against the enemy who hates us, who hates our family, who hates your kingdom. But God, your kingdom is greater. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's do this. As you know, it's Super Bowl Sunday. And as always, I like to take the opportunity to talk about the church. And so we're going to jump out of our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Matthew, the King and His Kingdom. Now next week will be our 70th conversation in Matthew. We're going to unpack Matthew 12, verses 22 through 32. I don't have a title for it yet, but in that, in that chapter and those verses we have, we have demons, we have uh, more attacks by the religious elite, uh, we have the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and the unforgivable sin. Like, what's that all about? But again, that's next week. This week, I want to unpack a conversation I'm calling, it, it takes a team, a team of disciples. Now, tonight at 6.30, 106 guys standing on opposite sidelines will face off in Super Bowl 58. San Francisco 49ers and the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, San Francisco is making their third attempt at winning their sixth Super Bowl. So they could join the likes of the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Patriots with six rings, right? You feel me? You feel me? Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, they lost to Kansas City in Super Bowl 54, 31 to 20. Uh, and they lost to Baltimore in Super Bowl 46, 34 to 31. The last time the Niners lifted the Lombardi was in 1996 when they beat the Chargers 49-26 to in Super Bowl 29. KC is looking to win their fourth Super Bowl. It will be their third Super Bowl in five years. Uh, by the way, just for historic fact, Patriots once won three in four years and then three in five years, but anyhow. <laughs> Uh, they're also looking to be the first team to win back-to-back Super Bowls since 2004 and 2005 when our New England Patriots did that. And, and just like last year, both starting quarterbacks, they are, they are Christians who are outspoken about their faith. And, and both these guys say that uh, you know, Patrick Mahomes, before every game, goes out to the goalpost and he prays. And what these guys pray for, you know, I heard some of Brock Purdy's uh, talking, you know, that not where they win, but whatever they do, they bring glory to God in the game. Uh, they see uh, they're doing this as a platform for Jesus. Okay, so who's pulling for Kansas City tonight? Anybody? All right. Who's pulling for the 49ers? Woo! I'm anti-Kansas City. I got to be honest. Um, you know, because I don't want anyone to challenge the dynasty of the Patriots or the goatness of Tom Brady, right? So I'm just anti. Uh, I have a jersey right with my name on it. Uh, um, the new head coach, Mayo, contacted me. They're struggling with quarterbacks. They said, hey, Steve, we would like you to come and become the new quarterback of the Patriots. So uh, that's breaking news right here. So I'll, I'll be leaving shortly for training camp for that. Not really. Anyhow. Did anyone believe that? I don't think so. But listen, no matter who wins the game, it will not be an individual win, but a team win. Amen? Over the years, there have been some great teams in sports. I, I want to share some of the, the greatest teams in sports history. They're not in any order. This is always fun to do. Here's the team right here. Uh, this is the UCLA Bruins. 
In a span of 12 years, these guys won 10 championships. Uh, this is a picture from 1973. Uh, they have just won their seventh championship. Back-to-back undefeated seasons, these guys won 88 games in a row. And, and their coach, John Wooden, do you know what he kept in his pocket? To remind me what matters most, he kept a cross in his pocket. Here, here's the next great team, the Boston Celtics. From 1957 to 1969, led by coach Red Auerbach and center Bill Russell, they won 11 championships in 13 years. This is from 1963. And I really hate to do this one, but I, I got to be honest and give the evil empire their props. This is the New York Yankees. Uh, there have been 119 World Series. These guys have been in 40 and won 27. Their best run was... From 1949 to 1958, in those 10 years, they went to nine World Series, and they won it seven times. They actually won five World Series in a row. Next team, the Pittsburgh Steelers. From 1975 to 1980, they won four Super Bowls. And get ready to boo, hiss, and hate for this next team. From 2001... The 2019, 16 division titles, 13 conference championships, nine Super Bowl appearances, and six Super Bowl wins. This is from Super Bowl 51 when we found out we won the greatest comeback in Super Bowl history. I'd have to look at my notes. <laughs> One more team so you don't have to settle on this team. You know this, anybody know what this team is? The 1936 U.S. Olympic growing team. There are just nine working-class guys living in the middle of the Depression who went on to win the gold medal in Berlin, really upsetting Hitler. To be honest, I never heard of these guys before the movie came out. It is a great movie. If you have not seen this movie, I highly recommend it. I, I recently started reading the book, The Boys in the Boat. And here are a few quotes from the, from the book about team. Every man in the boat had absolute confidence in every one of his mates. Why they won cannot be attributed to individuals, not even to stroke Dune Hum. It was heartfelt cooperation all spring that was responsible for the victory. Next quote. They believed that the harder they worked, the better they would become. They believed that if they upheld this ideal, their teammates would do. Their teammates would too. Next quote. They had learned to trust each other without reservation, to depend upon each other completely. And with each race, the bond grew stronger. They rode not only for themselves, but for each other, for their families, and for their country. In the boat, they were not just individuals. They were a team. They were a brotherhood. And I got to tell you, you know, this has to be one of the greatest team sports. I mean, you got to be in sync to pull this thing off. Some great teams, great sports teams. But there's also some great teams in the Bible. Like, when you think of great teams in the Bible, like, what teams pop into your mind? And understand, these guys were not going for a ring, a trophy, or a championship. Uh, they were competing for the glory of God. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, and by the way, I'm being very biblical using sports illustrations, all right? Paul did it, so I'm being biblical using it today. If football existed then, Paul would use football. But here's what Paul says. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. 
They do it to get a crown that will not last. We do it to get a crown that will last forever. So when you think of great biblical teams, here's some teams that pop into my mind. Noah and his three sons. I mean, these three guys without a single power tool built a ship that was 450 feet long, 70 feet wide, and 45 feet high. That's big. Not to mention bringing in and taking care of all those animals. I think of another team. I think of Moses and Aaron. I mean, two guys in their 80s sitting side by side, helping to deliver God's people for 400 years in Egyptian slavery. I mean, think about it. Armed with only their faith and their staff, they brought the mighty Egyptian empire to their knees. And then you have these guys in Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, three guys who stood together, who refused to bow to the idol, survived the fiery furnace, and whose faith caused a pagan king to turn to God. And then we have Nehemiah and his wall-building crew. Now this amazing team rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem that had been laying in ruins for 150 years. And they did it in just 52 days. Old Testament is full of great teams. Now, I can think of one guy who tried to go it alone, and it did not go so well for him. His name was, maybe you heard of him, his name was Samson. But in my opinion, the greatest team, not only in Scripture, but in all of human history, are the disciples in the early church. Just a bunch of regular guys. No egos, no superstars, zero first-round picks. Just a bunch of guys who loved Jesus and loved each other. Understand, this team, these people were devoted to God and his word. Whatever God told them to do, they did. Whatever God told them to stop doing, they stopped doing. Wherever God told them to go, they went. And when the government told them to stop talking about Jesus or die, thousands chose death. I mean, one guy on this team, like he, he's heading to Jerusalem and he knows that he's going to probably die there, said this, but my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus. The worker telling others is the good news about the wonderful grace of God. I'm ready not only to be bad, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. That's a committed team member, amen? No doubt about it, the greatest team in human history. My all-time favorite team, the church, the body and bride of Christ, the hope of the world. In fact, we're in this room today because of what this team has done the last 2,000 years. Get it? Right? That's why we're here. And you know, I wonder who will be here in the future because of us, because of you, because of me, uh, because of our commitment to this team, to, to his team. Yes, it takes a team, a team of disciples. And listen, when, when, when I use that word, it takes a team, I'm not talking about lifting a trophy or wearing a ring. I'm talking about the church. Understand the it and it takes a team, a team of disciples, is about the church being the salt and light of the world. It's about the church bringing hope to the hopeless, wholeness to the broken, freedom to the captives, belonging to the lonely. It's about the church rescuing people from the wrath of God and helping them to live the life they were created to live. It's about the church making disciples, making fully devoted followers of Jesus who change the world one life at a time. 
It takes a team, a team of disciples. And as you know, we are in the embryonic stages of getting really serious about being a church of disciples who make disciples. Uh, That's why 19 people a few weeks back on a Friday night and a Saturday watched some powerful videos from discipleship.org. It was some incredible teaching from leaders in the trenches who for years have been building churches who make disciples. The conversation has begun, but we're only getting started. Amen? This month, I'll be forming a team who will meet regularly to study a book written by one of those guys we heard, heard a few weeks back. His name is Jim Putman. The book is called Disciple Shift. We're going to study this book. We're going to meet several times a month. I don't have the frequency. And, and, and you do not have to have been there on that Friday and Saturday to be a part of the team. If you want to be a part of the team, I will give you a binder that has all the notes that we went over with all the links to the videos. You'll have to watch all those videos and then let me know if you want to be on the team. All right? Uh, by the end of the month, this team will be formed. All right? Because we want to make Jesus' final words our first work. Amen? And the book is divided into five shifts that we must make in order to become a church of, the, of disciples who make disciples. Here are those shifts. And this is what we'll be studying. From reaching to making, from informing, you know, we're pretty, churches pretty much were like knowledge-based rather than obedience-based. From informing to equipping, from program to purpose, from activity to relationship, from accumulating to to deploying. Five shifts. And, and again, if you're interested in being on this team, you know, I mean, we're going to meet several times a month. We're going to study this book. And we're going to talk about how we can help our church make this shift so that we're a church of disciples who make disciples. I, I, I want to share a quote from the forward of the book. It was written by a guy named Ed Coleman. Um, he wrote the book, if you ever heard of it, uh, The Master Plan of Evangelism. He wrote that book in 1963. The dude's in his 90s, and he's still passionate and learning new stuff about discipleship all the time. And here's what he wrote in the foreword of the book. And by the way, always read the foreword of a book, all right? You know, they have some good stuff in there. Here's what he writes. Something is missing in the life of the church. Today's institution has a platform of religion, but it seems to lack power. The power to radically change the wayward course of society. This is not to say that nothing worthwhile is happening. In fact, all kinds of things are going on. And if success is measured by big meetings, big buildings, and big budgets, then a church appears to be doing quite well. But the real question has to be asked, is all this business actually fulfilling the mandate of Christ to make disciples and teaching them in turn to do the same? That's the mission of the church. Yes, we want churches to grow. But it's becoming painfully evident that getting more people on the rolls has not resulted in a corresponding increase in transformed lives. Where do we find the contagious sacrifice and the all-out commitment to the Great Commission? An obsession with bigger numbers of converts, far too little attention has been given to nurture believers in how to live out their faith. This neglect has created a crisis in the contemporary church. How we deal with it, I believe, represents the most important issue we face today. That's why the concerns of this book are urgent. This book comes to grips with the problem of respectable superficiality, of respectable superficiality in the house of God. 
but what can be done about it? The authors go back to the Bible and recognize in the way Jesus made disciples an example all of us can follow. We don't need crowds to reach the world. True, our Lord did on occasion speak to multitudes, but most of his time was spent with a few learners. Being with them day after day was the essence of their training. Ministry was not seen as a specialized clerical calling, but as an everyday lifestyle of obedience to Christ. Replicating this pattern of living becomes the goal of any church who wants to represent a priesthood of all believers. Amen, end quote. It takes a team, a team of disciples, and that is what we are pursuing at Maple Grove, LNB. Anybody know what LNB means? It's something I made up, like never before, right? <laughs> LNB, baby. Come on, let's bring some LNB to the house, right? Like never before. <laughs> I'm not well. And, and, and I, I want to talk about these statements today that we're going to unpack. Uh, the call, the marks, the commission, the power, the beauty. The call to be a disciple, the marks of a disciple, the commission is to make disciples, the power for being and making disciples, the beauty in being and making disciples. The call is to be a disciple. Now, I've always loved this quote by N.T. Wright. No, excuse me, not N.T. Wright, Dallas Willard. The word disciple occurs 269 times in the New Testament. Christian is only found three times. It was first introduced to refer precisely to disciples. The New Testament is a book about disciples, by disciples, and for disciples of Jesus Christ. Most problems in contemporary churches can be explained by the fact that members have not yet decided to follow Jesus. Ouch. Okay, the call is to be a disciple. In fact, Jesus never, or his disciples never called anyone to be a Christian. What is a disciple? Well, the word means a learner or a student. And that day, students would, 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 disciples would come along the rabbi, listen to his teaching, and try to live out his life. So basically, becoming a disciple of Jesus is as simple as, in theory, obeying Jesus' call to follow him. Bottom line, a disciple is someone who listens to what Jesus says, does what Jesus does, goes where Jesus goes, and acts as Jesus acts. A disciple is someone who listens to what Jesus says, does what Jesus does, goes where Jesus goes, acts as Jesus acts. And here's the deal. It's impossible to truly be a disciple of someone without ending up like that person. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 10. We looked at it several weeks back. The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. And listen, when the teacher that you and I are following is Jesus, look out. Because some crazy, awesome, mind-blowing, life-changing things are going to happen in and through us as we become more and more like Jesus. Amen? Now, one of the books I have about discipleship on my, my shelf was written by a guy named Kyle Eidelman, uh, and the book is called Not a Fan. And the basic premise of this book is that Jesus did not call us to simply be fans who cheer for him in the stands or the sidelines, but instead to be men and women who walk onto the field and actually follow him with their lives. Now, we all know what a fan is, right? I mean, we see them filling stadiums and arenas and houses and living rooms, wing places all the time. In fact, today, 65,000 people will 
will fall into Allegiant Stadium in Nevada and 200 million people estimate will be watching the Super Bowl. And listen, when it comes to being a fan, I think NFL football fans are a breed of their own. I mean, check out these pictures. And a picture, could you imagine someone at a tennis tournament or golf dressing like this? Here's one. There you go. We got the Colts, the Bengals, and that's the Dolphins right there. (laughs) What do we got next? There we go. That's nice. Nice job. Do your job. All right. This one's going to make you stumble. All right. Ooh. (laughs) The Broncos. All right. Sorry. Sorry, ladies. Made you stumble. There's the Chiefs. All right. Something else right there. And we have one more. NFL football teams are serious about their teams. But listen, even though they they paint their faces, wear jerseys, put cheese on their head, wave terrible towels, and dress up like Halloween on steroids, they still only spend the day in the stands. Like, they they don't walk between the chalk lines. They they don't train all year long. Uh, They don't get up early. Uh, They don't keep running and pushing their bodies. What all they want to do is quit. They don't play through pain, sweat, blood, injuries, in the rain and snow, and in sub-zero temperatures. I think we all would agree that there's a big difference between fans who cheer in the stands or in their living rooms and those who are actually on the field taking hits. Check out this quote from the book, Not a Fan. Jesus was never interested in having fans. When he defines what kind of relationship he wants, enthusiastic admirer is an option. My concern is that many of our churches in America have gone from being sanctuaries to becoming stadiums. And every week all the fans come to the stadium where they cheer for Jesus but have no interest in truly following him. He writes, the biggest threat to the church today are fans who call themselves Christians but aren't actually interested in following Jesus. Uh, They want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not so close that it requires anything from them. End quote. Ouch. It's Jesus' call is is one of of discipleship, not a call to fandom. A, A few passages, if you don't believe me. And he said to them, if anyone, someone say if anyone. Someone say if anyone. <laughs> will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Large crowds were falling Traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone, someone say if anyone, anyone. comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Any of you, someone say any of you, someone say any of you who does not give up everything he has, cannot be my disciple. May he who have his ears, let him hear. And, and I, I want to point out several things in that passage about following Jesus and being a disciple. Number one, it is an open invitation. Someone say open invitation. Open. 
if anyone comes to me. I mean, the word anyone is a very significant word because it makes it clear just who Jesus is inviting. And Jesus is inviting anyone and everyone, and that's a really good thing, right? That's a good thing. Understand, it's an all-inclusive invitation with zero pre-qualifications. Again, anyone means anyone. Sexual past, anyone. Alcoholic, anyone. Addict, anyone. Divorced, anyone. Worried, anxious, fearful, lustful, prideful, angry, hypocrite, anyone. Republican, anyone. Democrat, anyone. White, black, brown, red, yellow, anyone. Chiefs fan, Yankee fan, anyone, <laughs> I guess. Number two, following Jesus is a passionate pursuit. Someone say passionate pursuit. If anyone would come after me. Now the term come after me was a phrase commonly used in the context of a romantic relationship. So when Jesus says come after me, the best way for us to understand that, what he's wanting from us is to compare it to how we would pursue someone that we wanted to have a romantic relationship with. You ever done that? I have. In the fall of 1996, I, I went after and I pursued someone with great passion. Now, I'd known her for five years, but the switch had flipped, and I decided I wanted a romantic relationship with her, and three months later, <laughs> she was my wife. Thank you for saying yes. <laughs> Come on, that's how we go after Jesus. <laughs> Number three, following Jesus is a priority relationship. Someone say a priority relationship. That was good. It's like you had something in your mouth when you said it. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, his own life, he cannot be my disciples. Now, the hater, now the hater is simply emphatic for, for love less. Or we could say, you, you, you have to love Jesus more than you love anyone else. A true disciple must love Jesus above all other relationships. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 37, whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You know, and, and, and if love is a verb, then who do you really love more? Jesus or your family, your own life? So you cannot love someone, anyone more than Jesus and still be a disciple. Understand, Jesus will, simply will not accept any rival to him. He doesn't want part of you. He wants all of you and all of me. Let's be clear. To, to love Christ is not to hate our, enemy, our family and friends. I mean, that would violate the second greatest commandment, which is to love our neighbor as ourselves. But listen, here's what happens. When, when we love Jesus above everyone else, are, are you listening? When we love Jesus above everyone else, what actually happens is it gives us a love for those around us that is much deeper and more selfless than we would have otherwise. What I'm trying to say is that when Jesus is the supreme love of a child, they desire to obey their parents and love their siblings. When Jesus is the supreme love of a spouse, that love compels him or her to sacrifice for the husband or wife as Jesus has sacrificed for them. When Jesus is the supreme love of a father or mother, that love produces in him an undying affection for their children. Again, when Jesus is our supreme love, 
We love others, family and friends, much deeper and more selfless than we would otherwise. And maybe we'll even love them enough to have hard and tough conversations. Um, one of the toughest may be, where are you going to be spending forever? If you love them, you'll have that conversation, right? Number four, following Jesus is a total surrender. If anyone will come after me, he let him deny himself. See, Jesus says we cannot come to him without denying ourselves. And that's tough for us to do in our lookout for number one, have it your way, do what's best for you, me first, I have my rights, American culture. But here's the deal. Followers of Jesus are willing to deny themselves and therefore say, I choose Jesus and his way of living over my career goals. I choose Jesus over money and possessions. I choose Jesus' way of living over being bitter, over being unforgiving. I choose Jesus' way of living over my personal comfort and my convenience and speaking those harsh words or satisfying the desires of my flesh. I choose Jesus and his ways over always having my way and demanding my rights. I choose Jesus and his way over only doing things that are easy or that benefit me. Amen? Called discipleship is an open invitation. Anyone. It's a passionate pursuit. Come after me. It's a priority relationship. Love Jesus most. It's a total surrender. Deny yourself. Get it? Good. Now let's unpack the next statement and don't get too freaked out. I know there's four to go, but this one will go quicker. You don't believe me. And listen, I know that I cannot say all that needs to be said about being and making disciples and about being the team that Jesus called us to be in one Sunday morning conversation or even in a weekend, right? That is why I'm forming a discipleship team. I mean, church, I am serious about this. We are going to do the hard work to be a church of disciples who make disciples, amen? And I also know that I don't have the ability, the power, to awaken the desire and passion in you or anyone about being and making disciples. I don't have that kind of power. I know who does. Holy Spirit. Father God, Holy Spirit, we come into your presence right now. Jesus, I know that you died. I know that you gave your life so that we will become your followers. And Father, I pray that you would awaken the desire in us to be like you, to become a fully mature follower of you to be passionate about being disciples and making disciples. Lord, help us not to to buy the Americanized version of Christianity, but buy the all-in early church version. Help us, Holy Spirit. Help me. In Jesus' name, amen. And remember, if you put on the jersey of Jesus, you are God's masterpiece, Created anew in Christ Jesus to do the good works he prepared in advance for you to do. If you put on Jesus' jersey, you are God's masterpiece. And God has created you anew in Christ Jesus. And he has good things that he wants you to do for this team and for his glory. Amen? Okay, the marks of a disciple. And, and this is about defining the marks or practices of a disciple. And, and, and this is something that the disciple shift team will be working on all year. Like, hey, what are the practices? What, what's the disciples... Who are they? What do they do? But to give you an idea of kind of what this means, I want to share just with some of the guys we watched 
how they define the marks and practices in their church. Uh, the first, uh, one's in your notes, the rest you can like, take a picture of or something. Okay? Uh, Rob Sweet's church, he said, hey, here are the practices of disciples. They commune with God. Uh, they hear and obey God's word. And, and this was, they love each person. And, and that each is so powerful. Yeah, we go, oh, I love all people. Really? Well, when you wake up in the morning, the first face you see. Like each person, each person. You mean that person at work that I don't like? You mean that student in my class that drives me crazy or whatever it is? Like no, they love each person and multiply your life. A guy named Bobby Harrington based off of Matthew 4.19. And he said to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. How he defines it is following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and joining the mission of Jesus. I mean, that's not rocket science. That's not complicated in theory, but the execution is what is tough. Uh, this dude named Robbie, uh, he actually decided, hey, I- I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the word marks, and he, he used, uh, uh, he had to use an S there, but he, he meant, he said, I, I just got, that. it only works with an S. Okay, here's some, here's some marks. Now, missional, that means they lived their life on mission with Jesus. Uh, uh, Disciples are accountable to somebody. Uh, they're reproducible. In other words, the mentee becomes a mentor. Uh, they're communal. They live in community with three to five people and, and practicing one another's. They're scriptural. They read the word daily, journal the word consistently, and memorize the word weekly. Okay, those are, so there's some marks, practice of a disciple. Now let's unpack the commission to make disciples. And, and Matthew 28, which a lot of us read Yesterday, in our faith from hearing, Bible reading plan, Jesus meets with his guys on the mountainside overlooking the Sea of Galilee. Understand, this is the most important meeting in all of human history. I mean, it changed the world. Like, like it's why we're here. And it's the only prearranged post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. Like, Jesus, he's in the upper room with his guys, the night of his arrest, and he says this in Matthew 26, this very night you'll all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I'll strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And then after Jesus rose from the dead, the ladies go to the tomb, they run into an angel, and the angel says this to them, go quickly and tell his disciples he's risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you'll see him, now I've told you. And they keep trucking back, and then they run into Jesus. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid, Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Right? This meeting was prearranged, the most important meeting in all human history. So his guys arrived at the mountainside. When they saw him, they worshipped, but, but some doubted. They didn't doubt Jesus. They didn't doubt his death, burial, and resurrection. I think it's more like an uncertainty, a hesitation, and... Are we really up for this thing? Words only use one other time in the New Testament. It's when Peter, in Matthew 4.31, when he sank while walking on water. He had faith, but he's not sure he was sufficient faith for the task at hand. So I think these guys are doubting themselves. Are we up for this task of making disciples? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
Uh, so the first step in making disciples is what? For people to do what? To be baptized. That happened in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 2. And then teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. And, and this is where, if I can use an illustration, you know, this is where the church fumbled the ball. Uncalled for, brother. Like, we got people saved, and we thought the job was done. And we have not taught people to obey everything Jesus commanded. This guy, um, Jim Putman, he goes around the churches, and yes, these churches, like, what percentage of people in your church are spiritually mature? And these are people who care about the question, you know, church leaders, and here's what he said. Here's what these leaders said. Uh, maybe 10 to 20% of the people in our churches are spiritually mature. That's not sad. That's not good. That means, that means 90, 80% of people are going out and representing Christ and not a Jesus way. See, Satan doesn't care how many people pile into a building. If 80% or 90% leave, they're not going to reflect Jesus when they go out there. Hey, come on in, fill out your outlines, preach your sermon, Steve, raise your hands, and then we go out and we're no different. He doesn't care how big our building, our budget is, if we're not being transformed by Jesus. Does that make sense? One author wrote this about the Great Commission. So what comes to your mind when you think about Jesus' command to make disciples of all nations? Many read these words as if they were meant to inspire pastors or missionaries on their way out to the mission field. But have you ever considered that maybe Jesus' command is meant for you? As we read the New Testament, we see God's people walking, working together in obedience to Christ's command. They reach out to people around them, calling them to obediently follow Jesus. The disciples went about making disciples, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus had commanded, and baptizing them. Some of them even moved to different areas or traveled around so that they could tell more people they took Jesus' word seriously and literally. Read the New Testament, it's not surprising to read that Jesus' followers were focused on making disciples. It makes sense in light of Jesus' ministry and the Great Commission. The surprise comes when we look at our churches today in light of Jesus' command to make disciples. Why is it that we so, see so little disciple-making taking place in church today? Do you really believe that Jesus told his early church followers to make disciples, but he wants 21st century church to do something different? None of us, none of us would claim to believe this, but... Somehow we have created a church culture where the paid ministers do the ministry and the rest show up occasionally, put some money in the plate, and leave feeling inspired or fed. We have moved so far away from Christ's command that many Christians don't have a frame of reference for what disciple-making looks like. End quote. Understand, Jesus does not say, go out and make church attenders. Go out and make sermon listeners. Go out and make praise time worshipers. He said, go and make Disciples. Literally, as you go, as you live out your life, make disciples. The power. And I get it. I know some of you are thinking, I mean, you're feeling like the disciples felt on the mountain overlooking, side, overlooking the Sea of Galilee. You're feeling overwhelmed. A little doubtful. Like, am I really, do I have what it takes? Am I up for this thing? Do I, do I have what it takes to be a disciple and to make a disciple? I'll answer that for you. You don't. 
You don't. See, the power to be who Jesus wants us to be and, and, and to do what Jesus wants us to do, it's not from us. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. He didn't say, follow me and make yourself fishers of men. Rather, hey, you follow me. You come alongside me. You learn from me. You show up and I'll do the heavy lifting. See, when we follow Jesus in a way that he commands us to follow him, he transforms us. His spirit transforms us. 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all know, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now, here's a statement I, I, I came up with. Like, we cannot transform ourselves into being true disciples, into Christ's likeness. However, uh, we can put ourselves in places that allow his spirit to do the work of transformation. Okay? Uh, we, we can't transform ourselves. However, we can put ourselves in places. We can, we can read the word. We can pray. We can attend church. We can, we can serve. We can sacrifice. We can be in intentional discipleship relationships. And that allows God to transform us. It's like you're on the lake in a sailboat and you don't create the wind, but you can raise the sails. And we put ourselves in a place where we raise the sails and God's spirit takes us to the other side to who he wants us to be. What about the power to make disciples? That's not from us either. I mean, when did Jesus, guys, become fishers of men? When they came to Jesus, when he made them fishers of men. When he transformed them into fishers of men. When he gave them his Holy Spirit. And here's this, another statement. You know, we cannot make ourselves into fishers of men. However, we can follow Jesus and allow him to take us into places where the Holy Spirit can work through us in the hearts and lives of other people. Does that make sense? God is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine because they were so strong and self-sufficient now. God is able to do more than we could ask or imagine through his power that works through us. Amen? It's not our power. But we got to put ourselves in places where God can unleash that power. Final point in your notes, the beauty of being and making disciples. Tune in if you haven't tuned in so far. Here's one of the beautiful things about it. You will experience more fully the life that Jesus wants you to live and that Jesus has empowered you to live. You know that life of living hope? That life of an inexpressible and glorious joy? That life of a peace that transcends all understanding? That life of meaning and purpose and fulfillment and satisfaction? That life of pure joy in our struggles? Of being more than a conqueror? That life of looking more and more like Jesus? That life of purpose in our pain, peace in our storm, and power in our struggles. The life of joining Jesus in his mission of redemption. Maple Grove, it takes a team, a team of disciples. Number two, second beautiful thing, is living out our lives in real authentic Christian community. 
where masks are taking off, where no one walks alone, where we get real, we get better. That's the beauty of living out our lives in real authentic Christian community where we help each other to live the best life according to God's design. Where we live out the one another's, where we love one another, encourage one another, bear with one another, carry one another's burdens, accept one another. Where we're not afraid to get messy. We are messy, messed up people. And where we break free, we live in a community where we break free from what this lady we listened to, Renee Sproul said, we break free of what she called the American mode of friendship. Here's how Renee defined it. The American mode of friendship, the mindset of minding your own business while everybody's life is falling apart because we don't get messy or to be too involved. And see, she came to the point, like, I'm tired of watching people's lives fall apart. She's like, hey, my life is good. I got a good marriage. We're happy. But other people's lives are falling apart. And see, the beauty is we come alongside broken people in the body and help them get better. And this best happens in these relationships, these three to five relationships, same gender, striving together to become disciples. What would a church look like that's full of disciples living in a real authentic community? Acts 2, all the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone in need. Every day they continued to meet together in temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with gladness in their hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those being saved. Paper Grove takes a team, a team of disciples in order to live in real authentic community. It takes a team, a team of disciples for each of us to live out the life God has for us. And the third beautiful thing about being and making disciples is you and I filling the world, filling our world, our homes, our families, our workplaces with lives that look more and more like the life of compassion and love and grace and truth that Jesus lived when he walked this planet. Showing this world, hey, here's how life should and can be lived. Here's what a family should look like. Here's how a husband should act. Here's how a wife should act. Here's how you respond when people hurt you and offend you. Here's how you respond to those who are hurting and have less than you. Showing the world what it looks like. And for that to happen, it will take a team, a team of disciples. Men and women following hard after Jesus. And intentional discipleship relationships. Not simply attending a church service. Now what we do in here is good. We should gather together. We should worship together. But as one guy said, if it stops here on Sunday, it's not even a church. It's not even a church. See, being here today is part of a process of becoming disciples. It's, it's part of it, but it's not the whole thing. Praise, programs, and preaching as much as I hate to admit sometimes, do not make disciples who make disciples. It's being intentional relationships. I, I got a quote that we're going to close. George Barner wrote a book called Growing True Disciples. This is so good. Really listen. The new millennium is a tremendous time for us to focus on true discipleship. People are searching for answers. 
for relationships, for meaning. The church has everything that people are seeking. The church has everything that people are seeking. They're seeking meaning. They're seeking relationships. They're seeking answers. If we're serious about ministering to people, we could not have asked for a better place in time in history to be alive. The challenges are enormous, of course, but the possibility for incredible results are equally vast. If we're willing to pay the price to follow the Lord, this is a time of unparalleled potential and promise. If we're willing to pay the price to follow the Lord, this is a time of unparalleled potential and promise. End quote. Wow. Two questions. Are you on the team? Are you on his team? If you're not on a team anywhere else, are you, are you willing to be on this team? We're going to have a starting point luncheon in a few weeks where we talk about a church and encourage you in the next steps to be a part of a team. You know, not on the sidelines, not watching home on TV, not in the stands, but on the field, striving together for a common goal to change the world one life at a time. And, and, and the next question is, you know, you know, are you a contributing member of the team? Right? I mean, like if you're a part of a team, like if like any of these guys decide, you know what happens when people don't want to play, they, or they don't play hard, you know, they're not on the team. You know, so if you're on the team, like how are you contributing to help this team be the best that she, that she can be for God's glory and for the good of the world, right? You know, and, and those questions I just want you to reflect on. You know, if you want to talk to me about joining this team, but I want everyone to reflect on, you know, we all have gifts and talents. And, and we're talking about the eternal destinies of people, where people spent forever, and the lives that people get to live now. I don't know about you, I don't want anyone in our church to be falling apart in their life, and no one's there, knows about it, and no one's there to help them. What a tragedy, right? That's not, that's not the intention of God at all. You know, we need each other. Life is hard, Right? But together, we can, we can weather the storm. So uh, it takes a team, a team of disciples. I'm going to pray us into our time of communion and, and uh, talk about somebody who went all in, right? Jesus went all in 2,000 years ago. You know, he paid it all. He paid a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we can never pay. And every week, we like to remember what he did. And so I'm going to pray us. And if you guys would say, I'll pray us into our time of worship. Our communion we have off to the side if you haven't picked it up yet. Also our boxes for offering if that's the way that you give. You also give online and things like that. Jesus, thank you for pouring into 11 guys 2,000 years ago so that we could be here today. So that we could hear the truth of your grace. And God, I, I pray, Holy Spirit, that each of us We'll reflect on your word and truth and what you've asked us to do. And, and God, though it's hard and difficult, Lord, it's the best way. It's the best life. The best thing for anyone is to live their life more fully with you. And God, I pray as we sing this song, Lord, about there's so many things that we could build our lives on, on our abilities, on our talents, on our success, on accomplishments, on what other people think of us. But God, I pray that we choose to build the foundation of our life on something that's stable and lasting. In Jesus' name, amen.